Hello, and welcome to this special series of podcasts that we call Malsite, discussing food and food cultures in an ever-changing world with rising insecurities and inequalities. For the first time, we will be doing a series in two different languages, so you can look forward to a few episodes in German as well as in English. Join us at the proverbial table as we explore the art, science, politics, aesthetics, commerce, and even philosophy of food around the world. This podcast is brought to you by Brill. As always, I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Ivo Wellemann Helmer. He's a professor for environmental humanities at the University of Fribourg Environmental Sciences and Humanities Institute. The book is Justice and Food Security in a Changing Climate. It's based on the proceedings of the European Society for Agriculture, Food and Ethics Conference 2021 in Fribourg. Ivo, thank you again for sitting down with us. Hello. Thank you. So first of all, what are the key questions about food security and climate change versus the ethical challenges concerning food security in a changing climate? I think we have kind of two topics. So one is food security and the ethical implications therein. And on the other side, we have climate change and the ethical concerns that we need to deal there. And then you have the combination of the two topics. When we talk about food security, we discuss issues of entitlement to food. So the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, for example, has defined what are food security indicators. So you need to have food available, food, you need to have access to food, it needs to be nutritious. And in terms of justice, you will talk about sufficiency levels of justice. So entitlement to certain kind of sufficiency of food security. If we talk on, about climate change, on the other hand, we will talk about the fair distribution of burdens to mitigate climate change or to provide uh, resources for climate adaptation. And these are uh, issues of distributive justice. We could also talk about compensation and justice. And at the same time, we would also have to talk about the entitlements to emit or the entitlements to help and who should get how much help um, to adapt to changing climatic conditions. But these are the separate topics. It gets interesting when you combine the two topics, because on one side, food productions and consumption, so the whole process from producing food until we eat it, um, contributes nearly half of emissions globally. And at the same time, when we do not do anything to mitigate climate change, we will have severe impacts on um, food security. So there's a, on one side a contribution side, but on the other side a need to mitigate climate change or adapt agriculture system to changing climatic conditions in order to ensure food security. And furthermore, if we take action to do that, so if we mitigate climate change and use biofuels, for example, or uh, technological uh, instruments to reduce or get the emissions out of the atmosphere, we risk, again, with these actions to undermine food security because some of these measures that we could take here um, compete arable land that is used to produce food. 
So this book talks about achieving a, quote, turnaround in the climate scenario. Is that even possible at this point when things seem so dire? I think we should never lose hope that we could achieve um, this goal. And if we do just do climate ethics with, you know, with, with the fear that we will never achieve some kind of mitigation of climate change or some kind of justice, I think what we do would not be of any sense at all. And I think philosophy can quite well help here because it can help us imagine a more just future, imagine a, um, a, a way how to live or a way of how to take action for uh, climate mitigation. So we can be imaginary here, but it, it's all based on hope. I'm not saying it's uh, possible to achieve it because th for that we would need to ask uh, physicians, climate scientists, but they still tell us if we take immediate action, we can achieve that. And this is kind of the background then of the philosophical proposals I would like to make. And what seems to me to be important in all these discussions, in philosophy discussions, where we imagine a future, I think what is important is not to forget about all the achievements we have that could come in conflict um, with uh, um, uh, radical climate action. So, for example, uh, a good point is talking about equality among members of society, Many argue, oh, we have this climate problem, so let's override equality among citizens. They don't understand what we need to do. Let's go with the scientists. Let's rule. Let's the scientists have the rule in order to achieve the goals. And I think if we want to imagine a future that is on one side really reaching a turnaround, but on the other side not undermining the achievements we have with regard uh, to our histories, we should also consider these kinds of considerations uh, that, in my view, are really important to keep as long as possible. Maybe add on, adding on one point, um, there's um, one um, paper in the book uh, talking about climate emergency. Um, when we get closer to a state of emergency, and emergency means that humanity uh, will cease to exist, then we can overcome or override all these uh, values that we have achieved. Then we have good arguments to go in direction of, of uh, dictatorship for protecting humanity, for example. But this is only an emergency case, and this must be really an emergency. And I think, or I hope, let's say I hope, that we are not yet in this situation so that we can keep up with our values and try to find imaginary solutions that in the future will um, secure human rights for most human beings, but also for animals and further on, so that we have more justice in the future um, and have ruled out the negative consequences of climate change. But this must remain a hope, but I'm working exactly for uh, contributing to achieving this hope. Yeah, I'm interested in that chapter about the climate emergency. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like when is the right time to use that phrase climate emergency or perhaps how should we be characterizing the state of things now? Because I feel that the UN and other organizations have come out reports within recent years saying basically the next five years are a window to do anything about this. And after that, um, then the window will have closed on uh, any climate mitigation at that point. Mm -hmm. 
So I would like to extend that a little bit. So the window might have closed on climate mitigation. It's still five years, so it's still a time of hope. But at the same time, it's clear that you are under pressure. And the question then is whether uh, viewing this under pressure should be uh, seen as an immediate emergency where especially those that rule can override um, the state of law and the legal regulations that we have in place. And this was the point where I was talking about equality or liberty and all the rights we have, because if you talk about an emergency, that also means that the usual processes in politics will be overridden. And for me, I think it's important, also in the chapter, it's it's important to be cautious about simply saying we are in an emergency and now we override the processes relevant um, uh, in, in politics and give some leaders already now um, the power to overrule all the, the, the political decisions that we have. At the same time, if you look at the consequences cl uh, climate change will, will have for low island developing states, for example, or with regard to the different changing climatic conditions that we already have all over the world that need adaptation, um, then we see that emergencies are already arising. And that means for these people, it's not uh, something where we can say, yes, it's it's far in the future, this emergency, or in five years, the emergency is now. And that means immediate action. And it also means, in my view, that we not always need to look at who caused climate change, who is responsible for what, how much contribution, because we are in a state of emergency and there it's more important that we help these people and not that we try to figure out who must do how much because they contributed so much to climate change, but rather who can help and they need to help and intervene now. So part of this book asks what we owe animals during the climate crisis. What is the political relationship between humans and other animals? Yeah, so one thing one needs to know, so this is a conference proceedings and the European Society for Agriculture, Food and Ethics has many people involved that uh, deal with animal ethics, more generally speaking, and for sure also with the political rights of animals or how animals and human beings relate to each other. And there's a, um, a famous book by uh, uh, Kim Litzka and Donaldson who wrote about uh, animals and their political rights. And there they try to reconsider the rights of animals as we would consider the rights of citizens if they are domesticated animals or if they are wild animals, they should be, they say they should be considered as individuals living in their own sovereign fear or in their own sovereign community. Now, if it, we talk about climate change um, and food production or climate change and wild animals, um, we have an interesting overlap there because as soon as we say animals have rights, animals need to be considered equally in, in our moral considerations, all of a sudden the range of stakeholders that are relevant in the debate about climate change and climate ethics gets bigger. And then the question is, what are the rights of animals in light of climate change? What are um, the duties we have towards wild animals, what are the duties we have towards um, domesticated animals in the face of climate change. But this is only one part. The other part where it gets close to classical animal ethics is the part um, where we talk about animal rights 
um, especially of domesticated animals, because there are people discussing how to improve or change animals so that they produce less emissions and that with these measures we can achieve climate change. And this is a classical question of animal ethics because there we ask, are animals really only tools? Can we deal with animals as instruments and then just use them as yeah, machines and talk about them as machines producing too many emissions and then we just uh, modify them in order to produce less emissions, but have still their products and their meat. And this is then the question, what are the rights of animals? How should we relate to them? Should we relate to them as they are just the mere means for us? Or should we relate to them as individuals that we need to be respected in their dignity as such? So this is the classical question that we have there. And overall, I wonder a bit whether including animals in this um, whole debate really changes the problems we have or whether they are just repeated. But what is crucial is that if we talk about climate action to be taken, as soon as animals become stakeholders, we need to consider their rights, we need to consider their interests also when taking action. So for example, if we build a dam, we need to consider what has that, what the meaning does that have for animals living there, for the biodiversity there. What could we do to reduce the negative impacts of these measures taken on these animals or these ecosystems um, that are um, facing these negative impacts? And jumping off of that question, uh, talking about animals, what are some of the technical and ethical challenges to synthetic meat? Because that's something we're seeing more and more coming out on the market. And part of its popularity, it seems, is that people are arguing it is more ethical to eat the synthetic meat or better for the environment. So. It's difficult to say what are the technical challenges of synthetic meat um, from a philosopher's perspective, but what we can say is that there's a big promise involved in synthetic meat, as you mentioned, namely that it is more environmentally friendly, it produces less emissions, and in the context of climate change and food security, this might be a good thing because we can reduce animal suffering, we can reduce emissions produced, and at the same time, we can go on with uh, the meat um, consumption that we had before. The chapter in the book that deals with this issue, however, um, um, ha is a bit critical about that because there are several issues involved here. On one side, in the process of um, producing synthetic meat, you must rely on cow fetuses that need to be taken out of cows and this without any anesthesia. Um, what leads to harm, at least to these animals. And in that sense, you need to discuss issues of animal suffering and have uh, concerns about animal ethics. So on one side, you can reduce the number of cows that need to be killed in order to get the meat or, um, on one side, but on the other side, you have still this smaller number of animal suffering. And this is definitely a discussion, especially for animal ethicists, because if you assume cows have rights and must be respected in their dignity, then you cannot um, just use them for such a process. So that's the one issue. And on the other side, you have um, an issue of food sovereignty. If you have uh, cultivated meat or if you talk about synthetic meat, 
because this is a highly technical process in the development. And once it is developed, it's definitely, it definitely will be a development of the developed countries in the north. And if we would ask globally that everyone just consumes uh, synthetic meat and no other meat anymore, then we would undermine an important topic, security debate or food debate overall, namely the question of food sovereignty. Certain countries and certain communities won't be able to produce the, this technology on their own, and they would then depend on the industry providing this synthetic meat. What would not be, uh, what would undermine the food sovereignty, their possibility to produce the food on their own, on their own decision. Um, and finally, I think, I mean, one is the food production, so reducing emissions, inducing harm, harm to animals. But then we still have the, the packaging, the transport, bringing the meat um, to, to the consumers, and all that still will produce emissions. And this will be a further question whether at least this part of the food production and consumption cycle will be so environmentally friendly as one initially thinks if we talk about the promise um, of synthetic meat. And I think that part is not um, enough discussed yet um, and definitely needs uh, more exploration. That's Evo Wallemann-Helmer. The book is Justice and Food Security in a Changing Climate. It's the Proceedings of the European Society for Agriculture, Food and Ethics Conference 2021 in Fribourg. Evo, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.